Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. You're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the ANU and Alan Gingell. National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hi, Darren. Now, I know we've got a great episode planned for today, and our guest is actually on the line with us now. But before we get started, there's something I must ask you about. It's never come up on the podcast before, but there's a secret in the way we (laughs) do this. When we speak here, I'm usually doing it from Canberra, and you are at the moment in Beirut, Lebanon which, of course, experienced one of the largest non-nuclear explosions in human history on the evening of Tuesday, the 4th of August. So I think it's important that we begin today by talking about that. Uh, So first of all, are you okay? (laughs) Yes, uh, thanks, Alan. We are okay. My family and I are okay. My wife, Rebecca Grindley, is Australia's ambassador here in Beirut. And we moved over with our two young kids in late 2018. So I've been recording the podcast remotely for the most part since then. I have the great privilege of being able to keep working at my ANU job remotely, albeit with regular trips back to Canberra in pre-COVID times. And it's already been quite a posting with a political crisis last year, followed by an economic crisis. And then only then did COVID-19 arrive. And now, of course, this explosion. I read that the embassy was pretty severely damaged and that there were some injuries. Were you at home at the time of the blast? What happened? Where were you? Yes, we were all home. Rebecca was working from home that day because she works every other day from the office because of coronavirus. And we had just sat down to an early dinner with the kids. I was actually in the kitchen and it happens to be the only room in our apartment that faces toward the port where the blast occurred. And I was looking out the window and saw this plume of smoke and I was wondering what that was. And I guess it was the original fire, the sort of the first mini explosion, which I hadn't heard. But then suddenly the plume got much larger and, and that reddish tinge, which we all saw in the videos afterwards, became apparent. And that's obviously when the blast happened and the sound arrived. And I remember hearing Rebecca shouting, down, down from the, from the other room. And then maybe three seconds later, the blast shockwave arrived. Now, we live about four or five kilometres from the port and the building shook and the windows were flung open, breaking hinges, but the glass itself didn't shatter. So I ran back to where Rebecca and the kids were eating. And now she's served in conflict zones before and she knew how to react. And so she had like dragged our four-year-old daughter sort of backwards off her chair, knocking that over and under her on the floor, away from the glass before the blast wave had hit. And then subsequently sort of pulled both kids into a windowless corridor sort of near where our bedrooms are. And we've got no idea what's happening at this stage. You know, that week there had been some, you know, some tension between Hezbollah and Israel. So you're wondering, well, what's, what is this? My job at that point was to, was to get our grab bag, as they call it, which has it's a backpack that has copies of our passports and some spare clothes and other essentials that you, we always have to have ready um, in case you have to leave in a hurry. And, and did you have to leave? 
No, so we were we huddled in the corridor for a while, and the kids were pretty upset because they were, I guess, reacting to to how we were reacting. So I put on some some cartoons on my iPad and, and opened a bag of crisps, and that that calmed them down. And meanwhile, Rebecca was just on her phone. You know, her job as ambassador was to work out what was happening. You know, was this a war or something else, mm-hmm. and begin to coordinate a response. It's six fifteen, maybe at that point, and she would go on to work at least the next 12 hours before maybe getting an hour's sleep and then working another 18 hours the following day. The first thing she had to do was to work out where the blast was and you know what caused it and whether there were any embassy staff affected, which was hard because the regular landline phones were down initially. And as I'm sure all of our listeners know, the, the damage to downtown Beirut was just tragically extensive. And the embassy, uh, as many of you will know, listening in as well, which is located much closer to the port, was severely damaged. And about eight of the embassy apartments were themselves blown out. But because our building was four or five kilometres away, we were mostly fine. And it actually then became the backup crisis. It is the backup crisis location. And so it became sort of the de facto embassy. So once Rebecca had assessed it was this one-off explosion and, and not <laughs> the start of a war, thank God, and that none of the injuries to the Australians were, were life-threatening, all of the Australian diplomats were then picked up and brought to us at the residence for initial treatment. We had, I think it was seven injuries in total, and mostly they were just from you know, what must have been a million panes of glass shattering in an instant, and with doors and windows being ripped away from their frames, from their moorings. So is it what what happened for the rest of the night? Well, I had to get the kids to sleep. And so after doing that, I, you know, I just tried to make myself useful, you know, bringing hot water and, and towels, mopping up blood from the floor of the residence and bringing people water and food. Meanwhile, Rebecca was assessing and, and, and planning the next steps. You know, she had to speak to the US ambassador sometime after midnight to get access for our injured diplomats to the small hospital that the Americans have on their own compound, given that local hospitals were just overwhelmed. And it was initially quite chaotic. I mean, you can imagine there's all these people here, people are in stunned, they're in tears. Yeah, some of them have been physically lifted and blown across rooms. They were in pain. They had glass in them all throughout their body, hair, legs, everything. Um, and they've lost everything in their homes. But Rebecca is just really good at crisis leadership. This is one of her real skills. And, and it was interesting to see the place become in her in particular, a sort of a calm centre of gravity, consulting, making decisions, directing activity. And there just came this point, I remember, where everyone was sitting calmly at the table. You know, bandages had been put on and <laughs> we're still all very dirty, but people were just calmly working through their crisis management checklists. And it was really amazing for me to witness. You know, then in the middle of this real horror, personal horror too, everyone was just getting on with their jobs. I mean, I went to bed, I think it was around 3 a.m., and the injured at that point had had left to go and get stitched up at the U.S. Embassy. But as I was closing my eyes, Rebecca was headed out the door to go and speak to Canberra from the embassy as it was. The photo she showed me of her office was really terrifying. You know, she she's the ambassador. She has a very secure office in a very secure building. But the force of the blast was so strong that these... 50 kilogram plus reinforced windows had been ripped out of their walls and one had sort of squashed her chair and you know a printer had been sliced through the wooden table had been you know broken or been cut completely in half and so had she been at her desk you know 6 p.m on a, on a tuesday night not an implausible thing yeah we don't i don't want to think about what that might have meant but you know mm-hmm. i did get to see a crisis response in real time over the coming days 
Uh, and I'm in awe of the embassy team staying cool and calm and just getting on with it each day. I mean, one of the injured officers is, is pregnant with twins, and she was out there on the airport tarmac in the summer heat, very hot summer heat, coordinating humanitarian supplies being flown in by the ADF. And our consul, her, who was in the office itself during the blast, you know, one of those big windows missed her by a couple of feet. You know, her apartment is gutted and she, she's out there looking after injured Australians for days, uh, you know, days in a row without a change of clothes. And Rebecca, too, you know, has just been unflappable, you know, just getting on with the job. You know, there's no way I'd be as calm and effective. So we have we have felt supported by Canberra um, and and the extra staff are on the first plane that arrived in Beirut the next morning. But there are significant repairs that will be needed for the embassy and there's a long road ahead, both for our community, but you know, much more so obviously for the country as a whole. You know, just an utterly devastating tragedy occurring right when things were already at a low point. Well, look, I'm sure all our regular podcast listeners will join me in wishing you and the other Australians in Beirut, as well as, of course, of the people of the city, all the best as you deal with the terrible aftermath of this explosion and, of course, the continuing COVID pandemic. Mm, thanks, Al. The public image of Australian diplomats swanning around at champagne <laughs> receptions is a long way from the reality of the work they normally do. But even more from the heroic efforts, and I don't think that's too strong a word, that they're often called on to make in times of crisis like this for the nation and its citizens. I, thinking back myself, in the course of this century, we've seen parallels to what you've been through in the work of our embassies in Washington on 9-11 or Jakarta after the Bali bombings in 2002, Bangkok after the 2004 tsunami, Tokyo, which I was actually in at the time, following the Fukushima earthquake and nuclear disaster in 2011. And the list goes on, and it's a story which is largely ignored in the media here. So thanks for telling us about it. Thanks, Alan. And now let's move on because we do, as we said before, have a guest with us. When you and I, Darren, were talking about how to celebrate the 50th episode of the podcast, which we did by interviewing Francis Adamson, you also suggested that it would be worth stepping back from the day-to-day -day news or the individual interviews, which are our normal format, and try to reflect on some of the large issues that have marked Australia and the world over the period we've been talking together. What are the themes that have preoccupied us? Are they becoming clearer with the passing of time or murkier? Have we changed our minds? And we thought the best way of doing this was to bring in an independent observer, someone whose views we both admire, and who has been newly released from the institutional constraints of the public service and let out into the wild. So welcome back, Richard Maud, the inaugural Executive Director Policy and Senior Fellow at the Asia Society Policy Institute. Thanks, Darren. Thanks, Alan. It's a pleasure to be back. As listeners know, Richard has had a long career in the Australian government, including as Director General of ONA and the Principal Writer and Wrangler of the 2017 Foreign Policy White Paper. And if you missed Richard's first discussion with us in late February this year, episode 41, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. So that said, Darren, I'm going to hand back over to you to MC this conversation, but that doesn't give you a leave pass from the hard questions that I'll intervene with from time to time. 
Okay, Alan, thank you. Let's start with the United States and in particular my interest in the trajectory of its political institutions. To quote Australia's recent defence strategic update, the US, quote, continues to underwrite the security and stability of the Indo-Pacific, and that's at paragraph 2.7. Now, such underwriting will not be sustained over the long term without the support or at least the consent of the American people and that support or consent being reflected in the policies of the US government. So I want to raise three pieces of evidence that I think offer us important but perhaps contradictory insights into the US's trajectory on this question. One, the the poor response of the federal government to COVID-19. Two, the fact that the Republican Party has still largely stuck with Trump, even as he is already seeking to undermine the legitimacy of the upcoming election. And three, the Democratic Party putting forward a pretty conventional, almost boring presidential ticket with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, notwithstanding the historic import of her nomination in particular. So the overarching question for Australian foreign policy is, what role do we think the US will play in our region in the medium to long term? But rather than asking you each to make particular predictions, I'm wondering, first, Richard, with you, what evidence from the past three and a half years of the Trump presidency and perhaps the past six months of COVID-19 especially, do you think helps us most in, in answering this overarching question? And has this evidence changed your own evaluation of the likely geopolitical trajectory of the country over the medium term? Thanks, Darren. It's a doozy of a question. And as you know, I've been (laughs) complaining to you for a whole week that your exam questions for this session are impossibly hard. And this one (laughs) is perhaps the hardest of them all, although it is really important. I'm not sure I'm up to it, but I'm going to give it a crack. Before doing so, though, just let me echo Alan's admiration for the work that Rebecca and her team are doing there in Beirut. And also, as Alan said, for the often unsung work that our diplomats do all around the world, it's especially hard, of course, uh, during uh, this global pandemic. And I do know, of course, from my own experience overseas and time as a leader in the department, that the support of partners like yourself, Darren, and of families is really essential during these times. So just to your question, I think the evidence is mixed and that we see some forces that might make you doubt the ability of the US to sustain a really constructive and active leadership role globally and in our region. And then you see some forces, some evidence that would take you in the other direction. And I suppose if you wanted to start from the negatives, From my point of view, the past three and a half years really have demonstrated over and again that we do have a president whose personal foreign policy instincts are highly transactional and are based on really the narrowest possible conception of US national interests. And he really does regard America as having lost out from much of its international leadership and from the long post-war effort to build a liberal international order. I don't think his foreign policy is about disengaging from the world. I'm not sure that's possible for America anyway, but it has been about engagement on selective and highly self-interested and narrow terms. And I do think that that's diminished global influence over the period that Trump has been president and also America's ability to maximise its security and prosperity over the long term. And I think also on on the sort of case for the negative, if you like, 
Trump, of course, is, you know, by no means the only person in America who has worried about US overreach. There are lots in the foreign policy world who believe America did overreach during a long period of time when it was really the only major power in the world. And of course, domestically, Trump's political talent has been tapping in to the very real domestic cost to the United States of trade competition and technology advances, especially automation. So here, of course, we're talking about the jobs that have been lost, the industries that have declined, the communities that have been very visibly damaged, and also the public weariness with forever wars. And those forces are real, and they do visibly shape US politics, including the way it thinks about its role in the world. Can we think then of the reaction to these forces, at least over the long time horizon, as shaping US politics in a positive way, the necessary reaction to these forces? Or are these instead signs of decay of the US political system? Look, I do think when you look at America, you can find any number of data points that suggest political and social decay. And there's a lot written on this, you know, the end of imperial grandeur, if you like. And Trump's made no real effort to fix many of these. And in fact, he's made some of them worse. And the list, of course, is long and obvious in many ways, the debt and deficit, the political polarisation and gridlock, the tax system, the public health system, which mystifies Australians, of course, the inequality, the social and racial divides, the unhealthy market power and concentration of the tech giants. And now, of course, the great damage COVID is doing. And these obviously all divert and divide America. And to some extent, they drain it. So you could add them to the evidence for the negative. But I do Mm. think there is another side of the story. China is closing the gap, but US power remains immense. And in 2019, before the pandemic, of course, the US still made up nearly a quarter of world GDP in nominal terms. That's a pretty remarkable statistic still. And again, before COVID hit, it was having a good run in economic growth. The economy bounced back pretty quickly after the global financial crisis. And the decade after Mm. that, really from 20 on, was pretty respectable rates of growth. The US has got a lot of other assets. It's got the world's deepest capital markets. It's got the dominance of the dollar, a large chunk of the world's most valuable companies. It's got an incredible record on innovation. And uh, this is a, a point that Americans often make to me, that for every grim story of political dysfunction, it's a big country and you can also find a state government or a community or a business doing something interesting and uh, really positive. And then lastly, when you think about public attitudes, there's a fair amount of polling that shows the US public is not quite as negative about US engagement in the world, or even as negative on hot button issues like trade, as you might think. And then finally, as you note, the Democrats have a more conventional looking foreign policy, although I don't think you'd say that necessarily about their economic and climate change Mm. policies. You mentioned China, and we often think of the Cold War as being a bit of a unifying force for Western political systems themselves to meet the uh, the communist challenge posed by the Soviet Union. Could China play such a, a unifying role here for the US? Look, I think there are signs that it is, and in some ways China might be the best and final argument for the positive side of this debate that America 
will remain engaged in our region. Despite Trump's strong instinct that the US is better off letting the rest of the world sort its own problems out, and even amid all these social and political rifts that we've talked about, I think it's notable that under Trump's presidency, the US has profoundly shifted the way it thinks about its relationship with China. It's elevated state-to-state competition to the centre of its national security and its national defence strategies. It's developed its own Indo-Pacific strategy to sit under these. Now, the, the Democrats argue that this strategy is full of contradictions and undercut by presidential instinct, but there's no fundamental disagreement with the idea that the old model of engagement with China failed and that the US must now re-gear itself for a long-term competition, including in the Indo-Pacific. That's not to say that there aren't foreign policy thinkers on both sides of politics who see all this as another example of the US overextending itself and call for US retrenchment in one form or another. But these voices are not actually driving policy at the moment uh, Mm. in either the Republican administration or in the Biden camp. Alan, Richard's given us a long list of things to think about. Would you add to that or emphasise any of those points? Well, I think I'd just emphasise the domestic. Darren, one thing that you've taught me in our long conversations together. So my take on this is influenced by the intractable nature of the political divisions in the United States. We've seen these over the past decade in the US, but they've really been dramatised by Trump and the pandemic. For me, the best example of that is whoever imagined that the wearing of protective face masks would be seen as a profound political signifier. Now, of course, the US has been divided before, but the current divisions do seem harder to reconcile because social media enables people to inhabit such separate worlds. Mm. No, I've said this before, but no element of the US establishment was more comprehensively marginalised by the Trump victory than the foreign policy elite, among whom I number some of my best friends. So the conclusion I come to is that however much the rest of the world is interested in America's return to effective global leadership, the years ahead are going to be ones in which the absolute priority of any American administration will be America. That doesn't mean that the US can't resume more effective international leadership but that the first priority is going to be on the home front in all its political, economic and social dimensions. And for someone who lived, you know, with the US through the Cold War, through the glory days of the 1990s, that is a substantial change. Sticking with the US domestic scene, when we interviewed Frances Adamson a few months ago, she made an interesting comment about her own leadership style during the COVID-19 pandemic. She recalled her COO saying to her, you're normally very inclusive and very consultative. Now is the time for directive. Because of course, a, a more directive approach was needed during a crisis. And it struck me that the issues embedded in, in her own personal pivot of management style have parallels when it comes to the capacity of different political systems and institutions to handle different types of policy challenges or crises. Alan and I have talked about the variation in the competency of governments in explaining cross-national variation in pandemic responses. And there's certainly an argument 
that political systems which are already directive, to use Francis's word, or indeed flat out authoritarian, can more easily slip into a directive mode. And that made them relatively more likely to handle this particular policy challenge. Yeah, so Richard, I'm wondering how are you thinking about the relationship between political systems, competency, and, and successful, you know, pandemic policy? I know that there might be a bit of an irony to one critique of Trump. Yeah, he's a wannabe authoritarian, but on COVID-19, maybe he wasn't authoritarian enough? Well, I don't think anyone in the US or anywhere in the democratic world was calling for Trump to be more authoritarian. They wanted him to be more effective. Mm. What people wanted for him to do was to take the threat seriously, to act early, to show national leadership and do what he could to bring Washington and the states together in a better coordinated and resourced way. You know, your question's a big one. I'm no epidemiologist and the last words on what drove relative performance on the pandemic won't be written for some time yet. But it seems to me that on the evidence we have so far, I wouldn't argue that authoritarian systems are automatically superior at handling challenges like this. Yes, clearly there are some advantages and China demonstrated that when it finally got going, it could lock down in a hard, at times brutal way. Mm. No democracy could do it in that way. And But then again, we wouldn't want to. Mm. And let's not forget also that China did make some significant mistakes early on. China can be directive, but it also has a highly centralised political model that prioritises social control and often punishes initiative. Mm. And that created the delays that allowed the pandemic to spread in a way that it really shouldn't have. And finally, there are democracies, of course, who did well from the beginning. And I think the keys to success could come either in a democracy or other political systems act early, especially in closing borders, rely on science and data, have a strong bureaucracy to implement policy, communicate well, encourage compliance with social distancing measures mm. and so on. And then just a last thought about the US. I don't really want to give President Trump a leave pass because I don't think he's earned it, but I think there are some factors that might have made fighting the pandemic in the US hard for any president, and these are perhaps less about institutions and forms of government per se, and more about the social and cultural makeup of the US. And we've already, between Alan and me, mentioned a couple of them. The political polarization clearly doesn't help. There's a culture of almost extreme individualism in some parts of US society. There's a distrust in mainstream media and orthodox advice. And I think it's also relevant here to remember that this is a very big federation. There are a hell of a lot of states in America and creating a genuine national endeavour uh, was always going to be hard for the get-go. I mean, imagine the Australian National Cabinet, except 10 times bigger. Imagine the Australian National Cabinet with California in it, for example. It's, it would be a lot more fractious and hard to manage. I think that then raises a, an interesting broader question beyond pandemic response. What is the optimal model of domestic political governance when it comes to 
major power rivalry. The US won the Cold War in part because of a dynamic and innovative economy that outcompeted and exhausted the Soviet Union. And there was also, I guess, a grand strategy to that with important exceptions that, that played to US strengths. But these historic internal strengths of the US system have been exposed, I suppose, during the pandemic. The distrust of government, the emphasis on individualism, a penchant for dramatic political swings. They've not served the country as well. And, and so the question is, are factors like this going to hold America back in other facets of competition, or can they remain net assets? So I guess this is the question. You know, the US does some things well and other things less well. The same is true for China, and we'll talk specifically about China in a moment. But what does the US need to do well to exercise power and leadership and play the role that Australia wants it to play in our region over the long term? Alan, can I start with you here? Well, it needs to demonstrate its capacity to exercise effective power, economic and military. That's the first thing. It needs to pay attention which it's not always particularly good at doing. It needs to be consistent and it needs to respond to and balance China, but not to force confrontations with it because the more bipolar the world looks to the Asian states, the more anxious they're going to be about it, I think. That's good policy advice. The question is, does that flow from the strengths and weaknesses of the US system? Richard, do you have a view here? I think in some ways, this is another way of coming at your first question. And It is, yes. <laughs> one thing that strikes me about US and foreign policy is that the US foreign policy elite has spent endless, I mean, truly endless hours and written endless words about what role America should play globally in a post-hegemonic era. If America can't build a liberal order on its own anymore, what can we do? So there's this degree of uncertainty about what the model should be. And fighting terrorists after 9-11 provided an answer for a while, and now we have China, but neither of those answers is complete. Neither of them is sufficient. Ben Rhodes, who was President Obama's Deputy National Security Advisor, had a nice line on this the other day when he said that the US had to rediscover its sense of purpose. And I really think that's the fundamental thing for it. They have to, as a nation, agree on a model for their role in the world in the future. And Richard Haas had a similar line writing in Foreign Affairs recently that Trump had inherited what he called an imperfect but valuable system, and then tried to repeal it, but without offering a substitute. And that just really has not worked out very well at all. So at the risk of offering what will probably sound to my American friends like immensely gratuitous advice to a great power, I think America will be most effective in exercising power and leadership if it can settle on a model that's politically sustainable at home, economically sustainable at home, and maximises its influence. And to me, that's a model that finds a path between the mistakes of imperial overreach of the past and the kind of very narrow nationalism we see now. It's a model that has America reinvesting in global public goods, in the institutions and systems and rules that Trump either neglects and or regards as a tax on US sovereignty or its economy. 
to my mind, it still remains true that to the extent the United States can work with its partners to shape the rules-based component of global order, it's going to be more secure in the long run. And I think there's a big rush now to write off the liberal order building project, but I think we'd be unwise to forget just how valuable many of its component parts are still, including to America. And I think, as Alan said, an America that leads on the basis of the best version of itself is always going to be more influential, similarly one that amplifies its national advantages, particularly its alliance network and its many close partners, and doing what it can to fix some of those domestic problems we've spoken about, to reinvest, if you like, in the domestic sources of its national strength. I don't think any of those things are incompatible with a healthy dose of foreign policy realism about the inherently competitive nature of the world order and the limits of global cooperation, nor with a more principled form of nationalism that we currently see. I think that's right. It struck me, Alan, in your earlier response that there's an expectation that America is going to be about America first, and in some sense, to use that Trump terminology. And I hear heard you say that and thought, that's actually not a bad thing. There's an op-ed that Ross Douthat, who's a New York Times columnist, wrote about a week ago, and I'll link to it in the show notes. He was criticizing a book written by a former Romney strategist who essentially is sort of blaming the Republican Party for allowing Trump to take it over, but without pinning any of the responsibility on the failures of the previous Republican elite who just thought, well, if we run on balanced budgets and some social conservatism and a muscular presence in the world, that will be fine. The people will follow us. And they weren't paying any attention to what governing and the the lived experience of ordinary Americans. And and they have been, Donald Trump came along as a demagogue and exposed that division between their vision of, well, we'll just lead and we'll get on with the governing and new people just stay quiet and what people were actually experiencing. And so for me, an American foreign policy and indeed a foreign policy of any country that is much more responsive to and can channel in positive ways, I think, those grievances and and the interests of the middle class and of regular Americans is a necessary component of whatever model of internationalism we have in the future. So I think that the final part of this conversation then, Richard, is sort of what can Australia do and and with our regional partners to help the US in this project? You know, what can we make up for some of the things the US won't be able to do, for example, and mitigate those US weaknesses? We can, but up to a point. At the end of the day, the US is a superpower and we're a middle power. And we really need America to be leading in a more productive way internationally. But there are still some things we can do. We can try to influence US policy. This is always hard, and it's especially hard with this administration. But we have pretty good alliance credentials in Washington these days. And we do have a record of being able to work behind the scenes to try and influence US policy. It's important to do this in a very positive way. And having done homework, it's no good going to any American administration and just saying, don't do that. You have to go to the conversation with policy ideas and solutions. Second thing we can do is to pull our weight. Trump is by no means the first US president to want others to bear more of the burden in maintaining global order. And again, our track record on that is pretty good. We can keep doing more of what we're already doing, which is to build ourselves a strong network of relations in the Indo-Pacific, particularly in Asia. 
investing as much as we can in the strength of these direct relations and doing what we can to support their resilience and sovereignty and to be able to provide choices for them when it comes to cooperation, whether it's aid or trade or financing for infrastructure or police training or defence cooperation or whatever it is, all of that adds in our own way to the pile of efforts to create a multipole bar region in which there are many countries shaping the way mm. the region works. And then lastly, I think we shouldn't give up on building global norms and rules, even in instances such as regional trade, where America, at least for the moment, is not interested. Stepping back, Richard, we've covered a lot of theoretical ground in thinking about what might happen with the US into the future. But from a practitioner's perspective, is this kind of discussion useful? Now, naturally, officials always consider a range of plausible futures, including ones like we've been discussing in which domestic political and social forces in America drive a deeper retreat from global leadership. But I think, you know, when you're thinking about policy and sitting in DFAT or you're in government, it's unwise to plan on that, just as it's unwise to plan on China somehow falling or failing or the party falling from power. And some of the things I've just spoken about are in ways of hedging against such an outcome. And you can see some of that woven through recent Australian foreign policy, investing in the alliance, but emphasising our own resilience and self-reliance, the need for an active foreign policy that engages Asia, and so on. And then a last point, I think it's one thing to you know, try and work out how consistent American leadership and engagement will be globally and in particular in our part of the world. But it's another question, again, which we don't have time for today, to wonder how effective that engagement will be in preserving American influence and preventing China from dominating the region. And crucially, as Alan said, how that competition, which by and large Australia welcomes, can be managed so that it doesn't lead to conflict. Okay, my turn now, Darren. From your point of view as an IR scholar, what strengths and weaknesses would you say matter most in assessing questions of how major powers exert influence? How long have you got, Alan? <laughs> this is a, a it would be a nice two-hour lecture, but broadly speaking, let's say four things. Yeah, the first material capabilities, your military force, the size of your economy, because I think these set the basic bounds for what can be done. But second, then, there is the capacity of governments to extract and deploy the resources that they have. And this is where the strength and structure of a society and its political institutions comes into play. You can have the world's largest military or its largest economy, but if those holding political power don't want to use them, then it, it doesn't matter. Mm. Third, a country's ability to attract allies and, and work with partners, which, of course, you know, allow to aggregate capabilities and cooperate to solve problems. And actually, that's only a list of three things, although I said four. But you know, when I look at the US, I do see still, as Richard said, robust material advantages. And I think in principle, still the capacity to work with allies and partners, albeit not so much under Trump. But we are seeing in that second dimension, you know, internal weaknesses, possibly decay, which of course have manifested most clearly in the last three and a half years. So on one level, it would seem 
that the Chinese system, and we'll get to China in a moment, might score much more highly on, on that second dimension. And perhaps the coherence and competence that arise from authoritarianism might be a basis of appeal to others. But as we saw with the fall of the Soviet Union, there is a brittleness to such political structures that it can be hard to see. And as well as political instincts, whether that's repression at home or, or bullying abroad, that can also undermine the capacity to attract and retain partners. So my assessment of the relative power between the US and China in the future boils down to which political system will have the qualities needed, the flexibility, the robustness to meet the pressures that are going to be thrown at it, both internal and external, over the next few decades. We won't see the decline of the Chinese system coming like we might be seeing the signs of the decline of the American system by nature of degrees of transparency. So it's really hard to know which system will... I would like to think that democracies have those built-in mechanisms to correct themselves and that correction is much harder in the strict authoritarian structures of a country like China. And that that will... Over the long run, thinking in terms of decades rather than months or years, situate America better. But this is the great political experiment. We haven't had a country with a political system like China be able to engage in a century-long or half, even half-century-long political competition. So I don't know is my answer, but <laughs> does that satisfy you, Alan? <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's good. Well, listeners, we thought we would end the episode here today and leave the rest of the conversation for a part two, which we will release within a week. In that second part, the conversation will turn to China and the issues of Hong Kong, Taiwan and technology decoupling in particular, as well as new models of international cooperation and the extent that Australian foreign policy needs to change to deal with all of these new challenges. For today, thanks as always to AIIA intern Mitchell McIntosh for a superb edit of the episode and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. <laughs>